This sermon's text today is coming from Romans chapter 6, verse 1 through 7. Romans 6, verses 1 through 7. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that, that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of you who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For we, for if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Lord, we will take up this morning now one of the most glorious themes in all the world, and that is union between the believer and the Lord. And I ask, Father, for help in making much of this great truth, because it is great to be unified with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and the Creator of the universe and the Redeemer of our souls is the greatest thing in the world. And so I ask that you would grant us an appropriate seriousness and attentiveness and openness and understanding and faith and humility to understand and embrace what is in verse 5. Father, I ask that you would unite people to Christ in this room who are not yet saved. There was that wonderful passage at the end of this book where Paul said of Andronicus and Junius, They were in Christ before I was. That was simply the way of talking about being a Christian in those days. They were in Christ before I was. They were saved before Paul was saved. And I pray that by your power you would put people into Christ this morning who have not yet been united to Christ. I ask this in his powerful name and for his glory. Amen. Last week we dealt with verses 3 and 4 here in chapter 6 and talked about baptism in particular and what it meant. And today I want to look at verse 5 alone and draw out the theme that is in it from other parts of the New Testament. This is a tremendously relevant teaching and a relevant portion for everything in your life. And you can see that relevance in several ways. For example, at the end of verse 4, where we left off last week, you see the phrase that we're to walk 
in newness of life. That's the meaning of our baptism, that we are buried with Christ and then we rise out of the water to walk in newness of life. And so newness of life doesn't mean newness of a piece of life. Newness of life means newness of all of life. That's why I say this this unit of Scripture is relevant for everything you do, not just a little portion of it. We are to become new people in all of life. Or you can see it again, this relevance for all of your life here in verse 6 at the end. So that we would no longer be slaves to sin. So the goal of these verses is that you wouldn't any longer be a slave to sin anywhere in your life. So it has to do with how you're following the political scene these days and how you're going to vote, this text does. It has to do with how you watch television and your leisure time. It has to do with your business and how you pursue your vocation. It has to do with how you dress and how you eat and how you spend your money. It has to do with how you treat your spouse and how you treat your children and how you treat your neighbors and how you treat your colleagues at work. It has to do with whether or not you resonate with children or resonate with young people who are about to be sent out in missions. This text is all about newness of total life. Newness of life to walk in it. And it's about being freed from bondage to sinning everywhere in your life. It's not about a little piece of you, a little Sunday morning part of you. It's about all of you all the time. And so it is huge and it is relevant for whoever you are and wherever you are. And Paul's business now. As he begins his unpacking of the application of the meaning of baptism in the rest of this chapter is to serve our freedom from sin. That is to serve our fight against sin. He wants to so speak. He actually believes that in writing a letter to the church in Rome, that church and then we secondarily will be helped to become new. Otherwise, he would not write it. His writing becomes a means of grace from God through his writing to us by which what he's writing about happens in our lives. Death to sin, life to God, triumph over the old and the arrival of the new. So we began last week with this interpretation of baptism. Verse 4, let me read it again, you see it. Verse 4, therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. So the first meaning of baptism is that it's an emblem, like a wedding ring of a vow. It's an emblem of a death that's happened. Death to sin with Christ. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, we come to verse 5. And what verse 5 does is take us a step deeper and explains how it is that we may think of ourselves as dead with Christ. How it is that we may think that the resurrection of Christ guarantees our newness of life. Why is that? I mean, that's what we said. That's what Paul says in verses 3 and 4. There's this connection that baptism is illustrating these things and making them... Plain, but why is it? 
How can this be that because Christ died, I died. Because he rose, I will most definitely rise. And now I can, by his spirit, walk in newness of life. What's the connection there? Now, let's read verse 5. This is the ground. This is the foundation. And this is what I meant in my prayer about union with Christ. It says, for... If we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Now, before I focus on the word united, which is what I want to spend most of my time on, united with him, I want to tackle this phrase, In the likeness of his death. That's a good literal translation. If you're looking at another version, as some of you are, you won't see it exactly like that. But that's a very good literal translation. We became united with him in the likeness of his death. What is that referring to? And you might think, well, it's a reference back to baptism, because the baptism is the image or the likeness of his death as we are buried with him in water. And I don't think that's the meaning of this verse. I don't think united with him in the likeness of his death means united with him in baptism, which is like his death. Because... If that were the case, then the second half of the verse, which is very parallel to the first half in the way it's structured, would also have to refer to baptism. And it can't, because it's future. Let's read it. If we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly... We shall be, we shall be, it hasn't happened yet. Now, baptism's over. It's gone. We shall be in the likeness, and that's missing in some of your translations, in the likeness of his resurrection. But it's definitely implicit in the way the grammar works in that verse. So I don't think this verse is another reference in the word likeness to baptism. I think likeness means this. When Christ died, he died in a unique way. We join him in death that is like his death, but not exactly like his death. He died as a perfect sin bearer for all those who sin and trust him. We don't die like that. When we die, we die in the likeness of his death, but not identical with his death. And when he rises, he will rise in a unique way as the first fruits of the harvest of all those who are in him. But we are like him in the way we will rise. We will have a resurrection body like his resurrection body. And I get this from the use of the word likeness in chapter 8, verse 3, where he became... In the likeness of sinful flesh. In other words, he's like us in our sinful flesh. He's really human, but not totally like us in that his flesh wasn't sinful. So there's a likeness of his coming down and joining us. And there's a likeness of our being united with him in his death and resurrection. 
So it's not another reference to baptism. It's a reference to our real dying with Christ like his death and real rising with Christ like his resurrection. Now, that's not my main point this morning. My main point this morning is to focus on the word united. Union with Christ is what I want to talk about in the few minutes that we have. And, oh, is this tremendously important. I I did a little search on the phrase in Christ, Greek, en Christo. You can even read Greek. It's that simple. En Christo. Everybody would know that's in Christ, right? And when you look up in Christ in your Greek Testament and find out all the places where it's used, it's used 73 times in the writings of Paul. 73 times he talks about something being in Christ. And there are other ways to refer to union with Christ besides that little phrase. It is so important that I want to give all my attention to it this morning and not even go to verses 6 and 7, which will take up next week. So let's be sure that you see where I'm getting this in verse 5. Notice. We have become united with him. We have become united with him. Those are the, those are the words that I'm going to spend all the rest of our time talking about by drawing in other places in the New Testament. This is the great doctrine of union with Christ. It is so important that if it is not in the framework of your thinking now, if you have not up till now in your life had that as one of the categories of your thought, and you can tell whether you do or not by whether it figures into your praying, for example. Do you, when you're praying with the family, do you say things like, Oh God, I bless you or I thank you that you have united me to your son. Do you say things like that? And if you don't, start doing it. After today's message, learn what this glorious truth is that we are united with Jesus and then start savoring it and counting it as precious and exulting in it and learning more about what its benefits are to you. You know, I'll just say in passing here, it is so merciful and good and wonderful of God that we enjoy the benefits of many things we do not understand. Or even know exist. God does not wait until your mind catches up theologically to his work before you benefit from his work. However, it is not in vain that Paul wrote this book. He doesn't mean for you to say, oh, well, if that's true, if I get all the benefits from all the truth about God, then there's no point in me knowing about the truth. They'll just flow to me. That is not true. I didn't go that far. You may enjoy more of God's benefits to you if you know how he works those benefits for you and in you. There is a connection between the mind's grasp of these things and your enjoyment and benefit of them. In fact, that really comes clear in chapter 6. Because in chapter 6, it's all about helping you become less sinful than you already are and more godly than you already are. And therefore, there's a real practical application in life to these fundamental things that he's teaching. And he calls you in verse 11 and verse 12 and verse 13 to 
apply consciously what he's teaching in these verses. Reckon yourself dead. Present your members as instruments of righteousness. Those are choices you make, and you won't even have the category in your brain to do them if you haven't read and understood the chapter. Close parenthesis on the importance of reading the Bible and understanding it. Would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1? This is just about eight or nine pages later in your Bible. It's the next book after Romans. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I want to show you one verse here that exalts in the tremendous importance of union with Christ. Our union with Jesus. Verse 30 of 1 Corinthians 1 goes like this. But by his doing, now that's referring to God, by God's doing, and it's a, it's a longer paraphrase of simply the phrase, from him. From him, or by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. There it is. You're united with him, you're in him, grafted into him like a, a, a vine and a branch. For example, that's the way Jesus talked about it. Who became, this Christ became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Now notice a couple of things about that verse. Number one, how did you get into Christ? Answer, by God's doing. God did this. Only God can do this. This is not a human act. This is not a performance. This is not surgery that any human surgeon could do by cutting Jesus open, putting a human in, sewing him back up. It's nothing like that. This is a divine work of God by which we are spiritually, mystically, some people use that word, mysteriously united to Jesus Christ. This is God's doing. It is God's work. From Him you are in Christ Jesus. Then, the second thing to notice is what comes with it. The benefits of it. Everything that God is for you, He is for you in Christ. Or He's not that for you. If you benefit at all from God savingly, it's because you are in Jesus. So look at these four things. He becomes wisdom from God. Jesus is now your wisdom when you're in him. He's now your righteousness when you're in him. He's now your sanctification when you're in him. He's now your redemption when you're in him. In this union, Christ becomes your wisdom and thus overcomes your blinding ignorance that keeps you away from him. In Christ Jesus becomes your righteousness and overcomes your guilt and condemnation. In Christ, Jesus becomes your sanctification and overcomes your corruption and pollution. In Christ, Jesus becomes your redemption and overcomes your miseries and pain and death. That word redemption occurs in Romans 8.23 where it says, We groan inwardly waiting for our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. So you have ignorance overcome by Jesus. You have guilt and condemnation overcome by Jesus. You have corruption and pollution overcome by Jesus. And you have death and pain and sickness overcome by Jesus. All because you are in Jesus. And so I just want to ask you, do you want 
blinding ignorance to be taken away from your heart that keeps you away from Him? Do you want guilt and condemnation to be removed and replaced with an alien righteousness? Do you want sanctification? That is, do you want to grow in life so that little by little you triumph over sin in your life and you're more holy and godly in ten years than you are today? And do you want at the end not to go to hell and lose everything, but to have a new body, a new soul, and all death and all tears and all crying and all pain and all depression and all brokenness put away from your life and eternal life forever and ever? And if the answer to that question is yes, then would you now start prizing your union with Jesus? Would you begin to treasure it more and more? Would you dwell on it day in and day out? Would you meditate on union with Christ morning and evening? Would you build this biblical way of thinking and seeing the world into your mind so that this is not a a thing of your you're ignorant of, but that you cherish and treasure and delight in and cleave to more than you would any trophy if you won the Twin Cities Marathon this morning. Oh, imagine those people out there running right now. They're running for such a, such a small thing. And we are running for such a big thing. And we will gain it if we're in Christ. Treasure being in Christ. Oh, how many texts we could go to. Let's go to another one. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. You can go there if you want or you can just listen. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. It says, God made him, that is Christ, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him don't miss those two last little huge explosive words what this teaches is that because of our union with him because we are in him we become righteous the same way Jesus became sinful. How did Jesus become sinful? Did he become sinful by sinning? No. Nor do we become righteous by doing righteousness. He became sinful by having God reckon to his account my sin. And I become righteous by having God reckon to my account His righteousness. And if that isn't the best news in all the world, I don't know what is. Because I know that in this life, both biblically and experientially, I'm not going to ever arrive at a point where I would qualify to be accepted by God. Ever. Therefore, I must have the qualification from another. And it is His. And then the question is, how do I get it? And the answer is, in Christ. United to Jesus, my sin is on Him, His righteousness is mine. And do you then see how huge this issue is? How important being in Christ is. Union with Christ is not a little throwaway minor doctrine. It is at the center.
Well, that's about justification. And I know I'm not supposed to be talking about justification because that was chapters 1 to 5 and we're into chapter 6. But we'll never leave it behind because as you're going to see in chapter 6 verse 7 next week, it's going to be a foundation for sanctification. And so I don't begrudge saying it. In fact, I'm going to say it in two more verses. In Galatians 2.17, Paul says, we seek to be justified in Christ. There it is again. We seek to be justified in Christ. Or Romans 8.1, this is one of our favorites, right? Therefore, there is now no condemnation to finish it for me. Those Okay, those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you love the thought that the almighty, infinitely powerful God is not condemning you, doesn't condemn you, if you would love to have that pronounced over your life this morning, looking into your life, seeing all sin and saying, not guilty. If you would like to hear... Almighty God, pronounce over your head this morning, no condemnation, not guilty. Then you've got to care about this issue in Christ Jesus. Because only in Christ Jesus do we hear the verdict, not guilty. Because in Christ Jesus, we are not guilty. We are clothed with Christ and his righteousness is ours and our sins are on him fully atoned for. But now let's make a shift quickly towards sanctification. Because I said a few weeks ago, I'll say it again and again. Union with Christ is not only the key to understanding and enjoying our justification. That is our getting right with God. Getting right with God. I don't think justification is a process. It's an event, a verdict, by which we are declared righteous. And uniting with Jesus is the key to that. It is also now the key to our moral transformation, or the big word, sanctification. The progressive change that we are to undergo until we're finally perfected at the resurrection, that progressive change, the key to that too, is our being in Christ Jesus. And I'll unpack the connection between those two, justification and sanctification, next week from verses 6 and 7. But listen to a very familiar couple of verses from outside Romans. Ephesians 2.10 We are His workmanship created what are the next two words in Christ Jesus for good works all right put it together now we are God's workmanship from him we are in Christ Jesus created in Christ Jesus for something what the big word is sanctification The little words are good works. We are created in Christ for good works. In Christ for good works. Being in Christ is the key to doing those good works. You will never do good works that evidence your justification and are thus pleasing to God if you are not in Christ. 
If you try to do good works to get into Christ, you will never get in. You can't get in that way. You get in only by faith. It's a free offer. And that those who come to Christ, embrace Christ, depend upon Christ, trust in Christ, those are in Christ. And then, out of the energy that flows through the Holy Spirit, and he'll be brought in later on in Romans, then you begin to do good works because of what is true of you in Christ. Or another verse in this regard, 2 Corinthians 5.17, If anyone is in Christ... He is a new creature. Just like we saw in Ephesians 2.10, God created us in Christ. Now he says, if you're in Christ, you're a new creature. The old has passed away. Behold, new things have come. This is so much like Romans 6. Romans 6, verse 6 says, Our old self was crucified with him. Isn't that just like... The old has passed away in 2 Corinthians 5.17. The old has passed away. That is, our old man was crucified. And new things have come. We're to walk in newness of life now that we are dead to the old ways. And so all over the Bible, all over the New Testament at least, there's this reality of calling us to Christ, whereby God unites us to him. And in him we escape the guilt and condemnation through his justification. And in him we begin to experience escape from our sin through sanctification. And we're called upon then to reckon ourselves dead to sin. If the old has passed away, then reckon it has passed away. Treat it as passed away. Live out its deadness and its pastness. We became, verse 5 of Romans 6, we became united with him in the likeness of his death. And now we are called to walk in newness of life because we will be united to him in the resurrection like his. Our vocation then is to become what we are in Christ. Now, let me try to close with just a couple of statements about practically what that means. Because that, you know, that sounds nice. Become what you are. And it is huge. It's exactly what verse 11, 12, and 13 say. Do now what God has done. You do what God has done. Lay hold on that which he has laid on, hold on you for. Work out that which he's working in you. Become what you are in Christ. But practically now, is there another way to say that? How would you say it? And I would do it like this. I would say, for you to savor what it means to be in Christ and to Become what you are in Christ is to trust what God has promised you in Christ. I'll give you two examples. Philippians 4.19 says, My God will supply all your needs 
according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. A very practical test of your enjoying your union with Christ is, do you believe that? My God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory, which are in Christ Jesus. So you get them if you're in Christ Jesus. If you're not, they're not yours. If you're in Christ, all the riches of God are available to you in Christ, which means he will never be at a loss to meet every one of your needs. If we need $9 million to do the good works appointed for us, we will have it. And if we don't need it to do what God calls us to do, we won't have it. God is, his arm is not shortened. So the question right now is, do you believe it? Now I'm not even thinking mainly about education for exaltation here. Everybody in this room has needs. Do you trust him according to Philippians 4.19? One last example. God says to you this morning, in Christ Jesus, I am persuaded that neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is... So now I'm holding out two promises to you. God will meet every need you have. And God's unfailing love will never depart from you in Christ Jesus. Becoming what you are in Christ Jesus means believing that. If you believe that, put it like this. This may help your memory. This is the way I think. If you believe all that God is for you in Christ Jesus, you will become all that God has made you in Christ Jesus. There's this correlation between becoming and believing. Becoming and believing. Romans 6 is saying, become, become, become what you are in Him. And it means at root, as we'll see more and more, believe, believe, believe all that He is for you in Him. And when you believe what He is for you in Him, you will become what you are in Him. Faith is the victory that overcomes sin. Faith is the victory that holds you tight with Christ and keeps the Holy Spirit moving mightily to bear the fruits of love and joy and peace in your life. And so I just beseech all of you. This would apply in one way to unbelievers in this room, and it would apply in another way to believers in this room. But it's the same command. Trust Him. Trust Him. Come to Him and His free offers to meet your need, His free offers to love you unto eternal life. Receive those, rest in those, don't work for those. 
trust those. And then in that union with Christ that God effects at that moment, enjoy his promises. Believe them. Let's pray. Father, I pray for saints to cherish their union with Jesus, union with Christ. May after today's message, parents pray over their children about union with Christ. Husbands and wives pray together with exultation about union with Christ. Single people pray alone and in friendship groups and families about how precious it is to be united to Christ. And may we understand all the benefits that flow from Christ. Amen. You're dismissed.